Go ahead and get started this morning. Let's, uh, let's open this morning with a word of prayer, if we can. Oh God, we thank you for your word, and um, Lord, we thank you especially this morning for the sacraments, um, for these, these wonderful blessings to us that you've given to your church. And uh, Lord, I pray that you give us clarity of thought as we try to understand them from your word this morning. And uh, as we continue in the weeks to come, um, participating in them, that uh, you would work in us a deeper and a richer knowledge and understanding of them, and through them, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, well, Don is passing around a thank you letter, so all of you will have a chance to see that. It's kind of going to make its way from over here and, and all the way over for some donations that were, that were being made. Um, so you'll want to take a look at that when it gets to you. All right, so we are this morning uh, continuing with our series on the sacraments. And we're going to be looking this morning at um, the Baptist view of the sacrament of baptism. And uh, we're in our sacrament series first looking at the doctrine of baptism. And we're now on the very last week that we're going to be looking at the history of the doctrine. All right, so we've, the last few weeks, right, we've been covering the Roman Catholic view of baptism we were looking at the, the Lutheran view. We looked at the Reform view last week, which is our view as Presbyterians. And then we're going to look today at the Baptist view. And uh, then, once we're done with that, next week we get to start looking at the Bible, which I'm sure all of you are looking forward to, right? We're going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at various passages related to baptism and then try to see what those passages have to say. And then we're going to try to put them all together and then move on to the Lord's Supper in the series. So that's where we're going. But today we've got our last day on the historical side, and we're going to look at what the Baptists say about baptism. Now, just by way of introduction and uh, just clarification, I have a lot of wonderful brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who are uh, faithful Baptists. All right? And I just want to say right from the get-go, I love my Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? They are good good people. And so when we talk about the Baptist view, in no way am I trying to just sort of bring down the fires of theological judgment on anyone or anything. But we do want to uh, consider their view and, and think through it as Presbyterians because it will help us in understanding our view. All right. So we're going to do two things looking at the Baptist view this morning. First, we're going to look at where the Baptists came from, sort of their historical origins. And then we'll look at their arguments and sort of just talk about that a little bit. And I'll ask for some feedback from you guys uh, toward the end, so make sure that you're paying attention. All right, so by way of introduction for the, uh, the history of the Baptists, where did they come from in history? Uh, some people tend to think that the Baptists came from a movement called the Anabaptists. All right, that's kind of sometimes a popular notion about where the Baptists came from, the Anabaptists. Does anybody know... Uh, who are the Anabaptists? Or who were they during the Reformation? Like, Anybody know anything about them? You ever heard of them before? Martha says yes. Do you know who they were? You don't know who they were? Okay, anybody? Nobody knows who they were. All right, great. Well, you get to learn this morning then. So the Anabaptists were a group that emerged during the period of the Reformation. Okay, They were sort of um, what th uh, historians call the radical Reformation. So you've got Luther and Calvin, right, the, the two major reformers, and of course they wanted to take the Roman Catholic Church's doctrines and they wanted to say, hey, you know what, Rome is right on the Trinity, 
They're right on the two natures of Christ. You know, they're right on all of this stuff. But the Roman Catholic Church has seriously misunderstood the doctrine of salvation because we're not justified by faith and works. Uh, the Bible says we're justified by faith alone. And so Luther and Calvin came along and said, you know what, we need to change these major doctrines. We need to reform. We need to go back to the scriptures. We need to go back to the right doctrine. And so Luther and Calvin maintained a lot of what Rome taught, but then corrected some other things. Right? That's the normal Reformation. That's the Reformation that we're going to celebrate this month at the Reformation Party. Right? But in, in addition to that Reformation at the time, there was also what we call the Radical Reformation. And that was brought about by the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists said, you know what, Luther and Calvin, you guys have not taken the Reformation far enough. We need to go a step further. And so the Radical Reformation did way more than Luther and Calvin in that the Anabaptists came along and said, you know what, we can just do away with the Old Testament. We don't need that part of the Bible. Let's just cut it out. It has no applicability for New Testament Christians whatsoever. Let's just get rid of it. Um, they, they rejected infant baptism. The Anabaptists did. They uh, accepted immersion only as baptism, a valid form of baptism. Um, they were pacifists. Uh, they separated from society, and they sort of created their own little colonies, and they didn't interact with anybody else. So you can see this is a pretty radical movement from the Anabaptists, and many of them also denied the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And they said we're justified also by works. So you can see there's some major issues with that movement. And so because the Anabaptists and their doctrine of baptism can sound a little bit like modern-day Baptists, sometimes people tend to think that the Baptists came from the Anabaptists. And so they criticize them because they're like, hey, you guys came from this radical, crazy movement, so we don't have to agree with what you're saying. But actually, the, the Baptists didn't come from the Radical Reformation. They didn't come from all of those crazy guys. Uh, the Baptists actually came from Anglicans. They came from a rogue Anglican minister in England in the early 1600s. And this is a little bit fascinating, I think. So there was an Anglican minister, and the Anglicans, of course, is the Church of England right, in the early 1600s. And there was an Anglican minister by the name of John Smith. Uh, and that's Smith with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H. And John Smith, who was an Anglican minister, he basically said, you know what? Luther and Calvin, I like the stuff that you guys are teaching. I like this doctrine of predestination. I think that's biblical. I like justification by faith alone. That's biblical. Really, I like Calvinism in general. But I think we need to get rid of infant baptism. That's what John Smith said, an Anglican minister. And he said, we need to get rid of infant baptism. I like Calvinism in general, but I don't like infant baptism. And so John Smith went and started his own church, left the Anglican church, started his own uh, little congregational church, and he took a bucket of water, and he dumped it on his head, and he baptized himself. Because he said his, in, his infant baptism that he had received in his Reformed church wasn't legitimate anymore. He needed to have a, a baptism as an adult, as a believer. So he baptized himself with a bucket of water. And so he became known as the self-baptizer in England. And he started a movement, not with the self-baptizing, but a movement with the rejection of infant baptism among English Calvinists. So there was a massive rejection of infant baptism. This, this um, John Smith church began to grow. 
And, of course, because the Church of England, the Anglican Church, was the official state church of England, that meant that this new growing Baptist church was in trouble because they were contrary to the legal church of the land. And so they ended up having to leave. Many of the Baptists had to flee to the Netherlands. And when they did that, they fled to the Netherlands in the early 1600s. And guess what major theological controversy was happening in the Netherlands? I know you, you won't guess it, but it's, it's the, uh, the Arminian controversy. Aren't you guys familiar with Arminian theology? The idea that, that God has not predestined who will be saved. Uh, God's not sovereign in salvation. Arminian theology teaches free will theology, decision theology. It's not up to God who's saved, rather it's up to you, up to your free choice. God has simply restored your ability to make the right choice, and then it's up to you to choose Christ or to not choose Christ. And so in that sense, salvation is reduced to man's ability. It's reduced to man's choice. So it's not God anymore. And so um, these, these Baptists who came from England, they fled to the Netherlands during this Arminian controversy, and many of the Baptists became Arminians from that controversy. And uh, then when England sort of reduced the laws against the Baptist church, all these Arminian Baptists came back to England, mingled with the Calvinist Baptists, and then all the Baptists together, because England was still under the Anglican church, they all went to America. And it was in America that we have sort of the establishing and the flourishing of a Calvinist Baptist tradition and an Arminian Baptist tradition. So there's two different uh, sort of branches of the Baptist church that I want you to see. You've got the Reformed Baptists, which we have a lot in common with as Presbyterians, because the Reformed Baptists are basically Presbyterians, but they don't baptize infants, and they don't have our form of church government. All right? I had a wonderful Reformed Baptist uh, mentor when I was in my undergrad, and he would tell me all the time, he's like, yeah, he says, I'm basically a Presbyterian, I just have a different form of church government, and I don't believe in infant baptism. So that's the Reformed Baptist tradition. We have a lot in common with those guys, and we love them dearly. And we also love dearly the other form of the Baptist tradition, and that's sort of the Arminian Baptists. And they're actually probably the majority. If you run into an average Baptist today, they're going to be an Arminian Baptist. And they do not have as much in common with us, because they're going to be against the doctrine of predestination and, and that sort of thing. So essentially what I'm saying is historically... There's two forms of Baptists. You have Reformed Baptists and you have Arminian Baptists, or what you sometimes are, you know, you hear the term particular Baptists and general Baptists. Okay? So you've got these two different traditions. And the reason why I bring that up is because later on in this series, when we're looking at some of the biblical text surrounding baptism, we're going to return to the Reformed Baptist view because their view of baptism is much more nuanced than the General Baptist view. Because Reformed Baptists have a strong doctrine of covenant, which, as you'll remember from last week, is also really important for our Presbyterian understanding of baptism. We also have a strong understanding of covenant. And we think that that buttresses and, and um, supports our doctrine of, of infant baptism. The Reformed Baptists come along and say, ah, we're going to make a few tweaks to the Presbyterian covenant theology in order to, to remove infant baptism from it. Okay? So we'll come back to the Reformed Baptist tradition later. Right now, though, as we move into the Baptist arguments, these arguments sort of encompass all Baptists together. It's just sort of like the general Baptist arguments 
for their doctrine of baptism. What do the Baptists teach? Well, I've sort of outlined here five points. So these are the five points of the Baptists. All right. Um, I don't. That's when you know I'm a true Calvinist at heart. Is when I start reducing everything to five points. But anyway, so we've got the five uh, arguments for the Baptist view. Okay. First, here's what they believe about the sacraments. And this is important for you guys. I, you know, I don't know how much um, familiarity you have with Baptists, but I imagine out of all the traditions we've looked at, you know, Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and so on, the Baptist view is the one you're going to run into the most because Baptists are by far the largest number of evangelical conservative Christians. Um, you're going to find a lot of Baptists, especially in America. And if you haven't already, you're going to run into them. And these are the kinds of arguments that you're going to hear from them um, in favor of their understanding of baptism. All right, so here's the first one. They want to say that sacraments are only signs and do no kind of spiritual work in the recipient or in the observers. Okay? So for a Baptist, they really want to stress sacraments do not do anything spiritually in the recipient. You remember, Roman Catholics believe that the sacraments infuse grace and therefore save the individual because it makes the individual righteous. There's the spiritual work for Roman Catholics in the sacraments. For Lutherans, the sacraments for an infant give the gift of faith. So there's the spiritual work there. And for us Reformed people, we believe the spiritual work in the sacraments is the nourishing, the supporting, and the growing of faith. All right, that's, that, at least that's one thing that we believe is the spiritual work. So we'll talk about more about the Reformed view of the spiritual work later, but we'll go into that more detail then. But for Baptists, there's no spiritual work in the sacrament. It is purely a sign. It is purely just a physical representation of a spiritual reality that does not happen in the sacrament, but actually happens outside the sacrament. Okay? So no spiritual work. And that's why the Baptists then don't like to use the word sacrament. When they're talking about baptism in the Lord's Supper, they don't like the word sacrament. Anybody know what word do they prefer instead? Yeah, ordinance. They like the word ordinance. And um, I, to me, this is kind of a minor point because it, it doesn't really matter what we call it. The ordinance isn't in the Bible. The word sacrament isn't in the Bible. These are theological terms. But um, the, uh, the Baptists think that the word sacrament sounds too Roman Catholic. It sounds too, too mystical and too, um, too uh, automatic. Too Roman Catholic, basically. And so they, they don't like that word. They like to use a different word. The ordinances of the church, not the sacraments. And uh, that's because they see the sacraments as no spiritual work whatsoever. It's only a sign. No different than you know, a road sign when you're driving down the road. Uh, the road sign is just a sign. It, the sign that says Pearl, Mississippi is not Pearl, Mississippi. Right? It's just a sign that says Pearl, Mississippi, pointing to something else. So it's, the sacraments are just a sign, nothing else. That's point number one. The second thing that Baptists want to say about the sacraments, or about baptism in particular, is that baptism fundamentally is a public declaration of personal faith in Christ. 
Baptism fundamentally is a public declaration of personal faith in Christ. And if you ever have a conversation with a Baptist brother or sister, they are going to repeat this over and over and over again because this is what a sacrament is or an ordinance is. And this is what baptism is. It is a public declaration of personal faith. So when you come and you receive baptism, what you are doing is you are announcing to the rest of the church that you have faith in Christ and that you promise to live for him all of your days. So you see, baptism for the Baptist is something where I am promising to do X, Y, and Z. It's a declaration of what my faith in Christ is going to be for my life and how from this moment on, I'm going to follow him. So it's a public declaration of personal faith in Christ. That's point two. Point three, children are not part of the visible church. Children are not part of the visible church. Now, do you understand? I'm sure you've heard this before, but let me just sort of clarify and explain. Have you heard this distinction before between the visible and the invisible church? I see some nods. Anybody not heard of this before, this distinction? Okay. So, in just, this isn't particular to Presbyterianism, but just in evangelical Christianity, we have this distinction that we make between the visible church and the invisible church. Okay? The visible church is all of those people who claim to believe in Christ and who attend church, they're members of a church, or at the very least, they say that they are Christians. So the visible church encompasses everyone who professes faith in Christ. Right? Just everyone who, who is a part of the congregation of believers and we're coming together and worshiping. So the visible church consists in, you know, not just Presbyterians, but Lutherans and Baptists and Anglicans and whoever believes in Christ for their salvation. Okay? That's the visible church. And we call it the visible church because we can see it. Right? We can see people professing faith. We can see people coming to church. We can see them partaking of the sacraments. We can see it. So it's visible. That's the visible church. But then we have this other thing called the invisible church. And that's the church that we can't see. And what we mean by the invisible church is those people who are truly believers. Because we know that not everyone who professes to believe in Christ, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Not everyone who claims to be a Christian or who goes to church actually is saved. Rather, the truly saved people are invisible. We can't see them. We don't know who they are. And we can make pretty good educated guesses. And we can assume, well, this person's probably saved, but we don't know 100%. The only person we can have full confidence in salvation in is ourselves, in the sense that we can have assurance of our own salvation, but we can't have 100% confidence of the salvation of other people because we can't see their heart. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know if they truly believe in Christ. And so those true believers, the elect of God, they are the invisible church. And it's invisible because we can't see it. Right? So you've got the invisible church and the visible church. The visible is the gathering of God's people visibly that we can see. The invisible are the people that are truly saved and we don't know who they are. Okay? You understand that distinction? All right, good. So 
For the Baptist theology then, they want to say that infants are not part of the visible church. Now, they're not saying infants aren't part of the invisible church. They're saying specifically infants are not part of the visible church. That is, when we think of the church, the gathering together of God's people, the children of believers are not included in that. Rather, the children of believers are to be treated as unbelievers because they are not part of God's covenant community. They are not part of God's people. Now, they might become part of God's people one day. When they come of age, they can profess faith in Christ. They can come to faith. And then they can become part of God's people. But as it stands, the children of believers are to be treated as unbelievers. Because they're not part of the visible church. And the Baptists recognize that this is entirely different from the Old Testament. Because everyone recognizes that the Old, in the Old Testament, the children of believers in Yahweh were considered part of the church. They were considered part of God's people. But in the New Testament, the Baptists want to say, that has changed. This is different now. Children are not part of the church today. Okay? You understand that essential difference there? And that's why then they, they say... That the only true believers of the visible church, excuse me, the only true members of the visible church are believers. Only people who profess faith in Christ are part of the visible church. Only them, not their children. And so then that leads us then to point five, which says no infant baptism. And you can see why that would be the case. Because if infants are not part of the visible church, then... They're not eligible for the sign that engrafts them into the visible church, which is baptism. Does that make sense? I'm getting nothing. Does that make sense? Does it not making sense? All right, good. All right. Just trying to get a little bit of feedback here. It's kind of understood. What's understood? Okay. All right. I know it's important. Right. Right. We'll get to that. So basically what what the Baptists want to say then is because children are not part of the visible church, they're not eligible for the sign of their inclusion in the visible church, which is baptism. That's very different from the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the children of believers were included in the visible church. The sign of circumcision was the inclusion into the Old Testament church. And that was administered to infants at eight days old. But now the Baptists want to say in the New Testament, this is no longer the case. It has changed dramatically. Okay? All right. So with all of that in mind, we've got a few minutes left, and I want to get a little bit of feedback here. What are, do you think the strengths of the Baptist view on baptism that we've talked about so far. What, what do you think makes this view attractive? And the reason I ask this is because the majority of conservative evangelical Christians today are Baptist. 
Now, I, I'm not saying that the, you know, we determine what's true based on how many people believe it. You don't do that. That's never how you do theology. You have to do it on the basis of Scripture. But nonetheless, right, we do have the majority of evangelicals being Baptists today. We as Presbyterians are in the minority here in terms of numbers. So what do you think makes the Baptist view attractive to just your general average Christian? Okay, it gives them more of a sense of maybe we could say experience. That they're, they get to experience their salvation a little bit more. They get to sort of participate in the sign. And, you know, for example, uh, for in Presbyterian churches or infant baptizing churches, you know, we never actually like, unless we are converted later in life and we join the church then and get baptized, we never experience our own baptism because we're too young to remember it. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. That's exactly right. But when it comes to the Baptist view, you can understand why they would like the experiential side of it, right? They like to contribute in their own way. And like you said, they like to sort of contribute to the salvation in, in that sense. So I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, it's just sort of this experience side. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yep, that's right. And Arminian theology is, is definitely more attractive in our own day and age, I think, because of the influence of humanism and, and secular philosophies and psychologies and that sort of thing. So you're right about that. Uh, did you have anything to add regarding um, the, the Baptist view of baptism? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that's what it goes along with. Just the experience of being going under the water, coming up. And, uh, I think I did about two or three times by the time I was 48 years mm. old. So, yeah. You never know, but the perseverance of the saints is it's not taught mm -hmm. in, the, in the Baptist or Man Church. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of people have already said this when, when they were exposed to Reformed theology, people started making sense of puzzles. Yeah. Especially the covenantal part of the Old Testament, which you were talking about. So it's like, I don't know, I heard more topical preaching in my lifetime growing up where there's not a lot of meat from Old Testament uh, scriptures. They, they were just full some strange. I mean, I'm not trying to call bad about it, but I'm just saying it would be topical preaching, it would not be what the scripture really meant. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. That's good. Uh, what else from the Baptist view that could seem attractive to Christians? All right, well, I've got a few things here that, that I could possibly bring up. Um, you know, the, the Baptists will frequently want to say that, you know, we don't see any single explicit occurrence of an infant baptism in the New Testament. Therefore, it's not valid. Right? There's no explicit example. Therefore, it's not valid. And um, on the surface, 
this can seem like sort of a good argument. It's like, hey, we're just appealing to the Bible. We're not adding here. Uh, We just want to do what the Bible says. We want to do what the Bible shows us. Uh, So it can seem on the surface as if they're really being faithful to the Bible. And I believe they really want to be. They're not trying to to misunderstand here. But um, I think they do nonetheless. But they're trying to be biblical. Okay, I think that's a strength here. They're trying to be biblical. Um, another thing that I think might uh, sort of uh, make the Baptist view seem more attractive is that it's, it seems very simple. On the surface, it seems like a very simple belief, right? It's just believe and then receive the sign. None of this complex arguments for infant baptism. We don't need all of this covenant theology coming in and just making everything all complicated. We don't need all of these outside the Bible arguments. Believe and be baptized. Simple as that. So on the surface, it can seem really simple. The problem is, however, that like actually if you, you know, if you get into it, you find out it's not quite so simple. Because when you deny that children are part of the visible church in the New Testament, you've got some serious issues in saying, why is that the case now? And, and why wasn't that the case in the Old Testament? Because it clearly wasn't the case there. So we'll deal with all of that more uh, later on. Jake, you got something to add? <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's part of why we're having this conversation here. We want to sort of iron this out and, and, and get it out there and understand it. Yes, sir. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Oh, that was John Smith who did that. Yeah, John Smith dumped the water in his head and baptized himself. I'm not sure what Arminius did. That's a good question. My, my suspicion is that he, he was infant baptized and that he actually did believe in infant baptism. I don't think Arminius himself was a Baptist. But I think his doctrine of salvation influenced the Baptists when they were in the Netherlands, I think. All right, so we've only got a couple minutes left here. That's what I have for the strengths and sort of the things that can make it seem attractive. Just as we're finishing up here, um, what do you think might be some of the weaknesses of this view? Because we've kind of already touched on this a little bit. But what would be some, some problems that we would have with this view? Does that relate to baptism at all here? Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. I'm, I'm wondering about weaknesses with the Baptist view in particular. Yeah, of baptism. Anything you guys would want to add? Okay, immersion only. All right, we'd have some problems with that. Yep. Yep, yeah, not only do the, the Baptist, I didn't mention that in the arguments, but Baptists not only reject infant baptism as legitimate, but they also reject generally any baptisms that aren't performed by immersion. So if we you know, sprinkle for a baptism or we pour water for a baptism, that's not legitimate. You have to be dunked under the water. So that's a, that's a pretty significant thing. Um, I have a few weaknesses here that I'll just sort of list out for us as we're bringing this to a close. Um, firstly, I think uh, the Baptists have a huge issue in that they're departing from 1,500 years of church history. 
Now, church history is not infallible, and it's not inerrant, and the church can make mistakes in history. But you have to admit, it is a little bit of a, of a bold claim to say that most of the baptisms practiced in the church for 1,500 years since the very earliest records of church history were invalid baptisms, and they weren't legit. 1,500 years of church history? I mean, that's a long time for the church to have just completely gotten it totally wrong from the very beginning. I'm not quite sure that I'd want to make that case. But again, it's possible. It's possible the church got it wrong. But nonetheless, it's a bold claim. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, we've already talked about the fact that you know, we disagree with them about the visible church. Um, we believe that not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, children are part of the visible church, not just professing believers. We believe right, in communing and non-communing members. That's how we put it in the, the PCA. We talk about uh, the believers being members and then the children being non-communing members. Right, so we're all members of the church. But there is still a slight distinction in that the children don't partake of the Lord's Supper until they make a profession of faith. So we'll talk about all of that stuff as we get along in this series. And then I think another issue, just as we close here, is that uh, there's too much discontinuity with the Old Testament and the Baptist view. You know, that they make a really sharp division between the Old and New Testaments. And I think that's going to be problematic, especially as we get into looking at a lot of Old Testament texts later in this series, starting next week, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. And then also, the Baptist view really, this is the last one here, the Baptist view really works well in America. And you'll notice this is where the Baptists thrive, is here in America. And uh, it works here in America because in America we have a very strong doctrine of individualism. We don't see the family as being central to God's plan. Rather, we see the individual as being central to God's plan. God cares about your personal salvation and not necessarily your family. That's, that's American individualism at work. And as Presbyterians and as we believe the Bible teaches, God is not just concerned with the individual, but he's also concerned with the family. And he does his primary work in the family. And so we'll look at that more later on. All right. I'm over time. Let's pray so that we can head out here. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, your word and we thank you for the sacraments, Lord. Give us clarity of thought as we deal with uh, this difficult subject. Help us to have uh, compassion and love for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us on these issues. And um, Lord, I pray that uh, you would get all the honor and glory from everything that we do here in the rest of this series. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.